welcome to the EPP Group podcast series on the future of Europe. Together with our guests, we discuss ideas and the way forward for the reform of the European Union. Keep listening to the episode and please follow the EPP Group on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Hello and a very warm welcome. My name is Alexandra von Nam and I am excited to moderate this talk coming to you directly from the European Parliament. I am honored to have two distinguished guests with us today. Jean-Claude Juncker, President of the European Commission from 2014 to 2019, a politician who has fought many battles on behalf of the European Union and whom former US President Donald Trump once described as a tough cookie. Thank you for your time. And a very warm welcome to our host, Manfred Weber, the chairman of the EPP Group in the European Parliament, a committed pro-European who is not afraid to speak pain plainly when it comes to the EU's weaknesses. Thank you very much for your time. So, if I may, let's start on a positive note. For in your opinion, yes. <laughs> what in your opinion, what has been the greatest achievement of the European Union no one ever thought would be possible? There are many, but there is one uh, European uh, performance that's the introduction of the euro because nobody believed when we were starting the whole process late in the 80s of last century, the law report and so on and so forth. Nobody really believed that this would be possible, mainly not in Germany, because all the German professors and, and others, uh, some of the politicians of our own political fa family, they never thought that this could be achieved. It was uh, thanks to uh, the then governing uh, uh, governments. Uh, uh, you have to remember that in Germany, the figures were not inviting Germany to become one of the first members of the euro area. I remember all these years, 91, 92, until 97, where Luxembourg was the only country to fulfill the so-called Maastricht criteria. I always said to myself, that will not be sufficient to launch <laughs> the Economic and Monetary Union, but uh, nevertheless, governments, mainly Kohl and others, they were able to um, put their figures in, uh, in, uh, in order. So, in fact, that's the greatest uh, performance and it uh, impressed the other parts of the globe because there too, others did not believe that this could be uh, achieved. I will always remember a visit I paid to President Clinton back in '95, and he was inviting me to describe the State of the Union and I was uh, starting by saying that, we, of course, we will try to put into place this monetary union. I said, no, 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 let's not talk about dreams. Let's talk about the Turkish membership. That was in 95. It hasn't changed so much. It has changed a little bit. And in your opinion, Mr. Weber, what has been the biggest, uh, greatest achievement of the European Union? Well, I, I absolutely share that the euro is the biggest, uh, let me say, practical step for for creating a European Union, a real union. But if I may, you know, I read in the last month a lot of history books again uh, about the beginning before the First World War and so on and so forth. And 
And even my grandfather, my grandfather grew up in a situation in Bavaria where he was told he should be proud to be a German and nothing else, full stop. And I think the biggest achievement of the European Union is that today we all, my father, the, the young generation, I myself, we have today a good feeling to be European, to have a feeling that this Europe belongs together, that we have a European identity in our mind. And that is this, this changing of thinking. Therefore, you need structure. Therefore, you need an, an organization. You need a an parliament. You need a commission. You need an, a structure behind to fix this, to make this sure, this process. But again, the biggest achievement is that we added to this national egoism, which costs us so much lives in this European Union, in this Europe, uh, that we added this European thinking to be a European. And now we are thinking how to move forward. The Conference on the Future of Europe has been officially launched um, and the focus is clear what has to be done to improve the European Union. What is the urgent issue, President Juncker? Yes, I'm a little bit doubtful when it comes to this uh, European Conference because, um, in fact, this is not the first European uh, Conference because when Giscard d'Estaing the uh, convention leading to the Constitution Treaty of the European Union, everyone was involved. European Parliament, National Parliaments, Commission, Civil Society. And nevertheless, it led to a failure because the Dutch and the uh, French voted no to this uh, constitutional uh, treaty. So the group uh, gathering here in Brussels and elsewhere, but mainly in Brussels, was a very large one. All the um, uh, elements uh, of debate were introduced in that global debate of the European uh, Convention. It's not enough to call for a European conference. This has to be a process driven by strong European convictions and they are not unanimously shared by all those who will um, be stakeholders of uh, Uh, this uh, European conference. But I do think that um, further steps are, are needed because in all the political areas which have to be revisited, there is a need for a better uh, Europe, not only for more Europe. Maybe that in, certain, in, in a given number of domains, more Europe is needed, but a better Europe is needed uh, everywhere. And I think that... Uh, Uh, this has to be uh, uh, the motto, the leitmotiv of this uh, European conference. I'm welcoming this European conference. I don't like the way this has been organized because now we have three presidents of the European uh, conference changing after six months period. Uh, we have uh, in the first semester of 2022 the French uh, uh, president, later on we will have other presidents, so it's, um, it seems to me to run the risk of uh, becoming, uh, after a certain period of time, rather chaotic. I, unfortunately, the members of the European Parliament will uh, actively participate in this and they will bring the uh, participants back to future realities. But you just suggested that there is the danger of this being another talking shop. So what should happen that that's not the case? 
Yeah, but I think this European conference needs, needs a clear agenda. Where are the domains where the European Union as a whole could do more? Where are domains where the European Union could do less? I had published during my time as president of the Commission a white book on the European future with different uh, scenarios. They have to be revisited. For me, it's uh, uh, crystal clear that we cannot uh, stay where we are. We have uh, to take further future-oriented steps. We cannot stay where we are, uh, but there seems to be a certain disconnect between many European citizens and the European Union institutions. So how can we make sure that the people will have uh, a more say in what is happening? Well, good politics starts with listening. Huh? is having an idea what people expect from us, from Europe, from, the, from their European Union. And that's why the approach to start also with the involvement of citizens is a good one. Huh? That is a starting point. On the other hand, I don't think uh, that, uh, that having in mind that, uh, that a lot of what also Jean-Claude described, when we listen to some of the leaders on national level, is their reluctance to consider next steps and strengthening the European Union. I, I, I'm a member of parliament and I say, I'm, I'm optimistic and I don't want to talk about what is possible. I want to talk about what is needed. What do we have to do now? And we are still in the middle of an, of an health crisis. The pandemic is all over Europe, still one of the biggest problems. People are dying every day. And Europe has no right, no, no, uh, no legal base at all to deal with health issues, even having in mind that all Europeans understand immediately that this is needed. Yeah. Uh, immediately after the crisis now and to protect our Schengen idea on the external border but also internally not to build up again uh, borders in the European Union. So we have so much arguments for going to the citizens and tell them and we need, we need citizens and we need also the colleagues on national level as, as real partners, as alliance to convince then finally also the very sceptical, sometimes very negative speaking colleagues from the European Council. And I want to be frank, I, I hope that uh, for, 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 for for the EPP, it's also clear that our colleagues on the council level will be the front runner in this regard. I want to see an engagement there, uh, especially when we will hopefully have uh, Armin Laschet then in office in, in Berlin, that I also count on him that in the beginning of next year with the new chancellor, we will do a restart. And that means prepare for the next 10 years, look what is ahead of us and try to give answers before crisis arrives in Europe. And talking about the coronavirus pandemic, you have managed the European Union through many different crises, the financial crisis, the migration crisis, Brexit. So uh, what grade would you give the European Union for managing uh, this unprecedented pandemic? Yes, because I, I think that um, uh, the European Union has some weaknesses and one of the major, obviously, one of the major weaknesses is the absence of competencies in the public health uh, sector. This doesn't come as a surprise to me because back in the Giscard years, some governments were proposing increased European competencies in the health sector, including my then government. But most of the governments, including those led by EPP members, they rejected that idea because they thought that the Commission anyway had two um, prerogatives, two competencies uh, uh, too much and that uh, time has come to reduce the influence of the European Commission. No, no, the European Union and thus the European Commission, the European Commission and thus the European Union has to have broader rights when it comes uh, 
to the public health uh, sector. What we were experiencing is at the very beginning of the pandemic was a total disaster because national governments, as they had no European framework uh, to move in, they uh, were referring to their national uh, framework, which is not the right one. A pandemic is not limited uh, to Luxembourg. If it had been so, it would have been easier. It's a global problem, not only as far as the European Union is concerned, but also as uh, other parts of uh, uh, the globe are concerned. So we need a stronger say of the European Union in the public health uh, sector. I still didn't answer the question. What grade would you give the European Union? But I'm, I'm no longer in a position to... Uh, to tell other people what they have uh, uh, to do. I'm used to the fact that I was told by all the Europeans what to, to do, and when I did it, they did disagree. <laughs> so what lessons have to be learned from this pandemic in terms of concrete measures? Well, if I may first say that I think the start of this pandemic and the first reactions were again typical for Europe. Huh? Uh, thousands of voices, no coordination, But then finally, step by step, we delivered the common understanding. So today we can say we can arrive as the first continent to be fully vaccinated. That is a big achievement. And secondly, the recovery fund, the first time that we go to markets, borrow money, we invest now in the future of Europe, is really a huge, even historic achievement that we do this together, this recovery process. Because even, even in countries who are very reluctant on this approach, they understood that Italy is not responsible for COVID. So everybody understood this. Huh? And that's why I think that was good. But if you ask me in regard to the Future of Europe conference, what is the most important thing, I would say, we can speak about even uh, less Europe. But oh, that's interesting. we can Where? speak. I'm ready to talk about the competences for Europe. I think there is more Europe needed, don't get me wrong. But we even can speak about less competences. But what I think is the crucial point is we need a Europe who can also execute what is decided on European level. Look to border protection, look to the 3% on the Euro side and so on. So the Commission only can go to the European Court of Justice and then three years afterwards you have, you have a court case outcome. Uh, uh, we have only a few fields, for example, on the competition law where the Commission is fully a, a, a real government of Europe. And there, Europe is strong to Apple, to Google and so on. There, Europe is strong. And that's why we need also a Europe which can execute the decisions we made legally on the base of parliament and council decisions, the decisions we made. That, I think, is a key question now for the future of Europe. Not only a lawmaker, not only an, an body where we talk to each other and try to find compromises, but also a level where we can execute things and implement things because then things arrive in the daily life of citizens when you execute things finally. So that is probably a theoretical point or a technical point, but I think for the political life an extremely important one for the future of Europe. And would you say that the European citizens would be in favor of that? Do you think that they want it? Absolutely. I'm sure about this. People don't ask who is, who is doing it. Yeah. People want to have solutions. That is what people want to have. And I think in a lot of... I give you on the pandemic a very concrete example. We in, in Austria there was in the shops one meter distance. In Germany, one, meter, one and a half meter distance. And in other countries, two meter distance. And people ask themselves, do the European experts have an idea uh, how, how far a, a COVID virus is flying or transmitted and so on? You know, that's why we need an, an European uh, Marie Curie Institute who defines for the European Union in general what are the rules. So that is what we need, executive competence for the European level. 
And the European Commission um, has always been a driving force for further European integration, and you have been a vocal advocate for that. Uh, what would you say, what is now the most important goal for the European Commission, taking into consideration everything we talked about? I think that we have to further reduce the red tape. My commission tried to do so. We have reduced bureaucracy by 87%. Nobody knows it because everyone is saying this has to be done. It has been done. Not Yes, that's correct. Uh, totally, but nevertheless, uh, uh, we were at the beginning of, uh, of a reducing uh, process. I do think that now we have to put our house in order. The rule of law has to be respected in an uh, entire way. This is no longer the case. It was the case for decades that we had the common rule of law and uh, member states were respecting that rule of law. It is no longer the case. This has to be brought to a uh, situation where this um, Uh, principle is uh, better respected and so uh, I don't think that we have to compromise on this. That's for the internal uh, point. As far as the external uh, part of uh, the uh, action of the European uh, Union is uh, concerned, we have to make sure that in uh, foreign and diplomatic affairs uh, we'll be able to speak with one voice. We are not speaking with one voice because we have this um, principle of unanimity when it comes to foreign policy, which is to some extent ridiculous. The European Union, the European continent is the smallest continent of the world. The Europeans are considering that we are the big guys in the world. We are not the big players. We are a very small continent. And this continent needs dramatically Uh, to speak uh, with uh, one uh, voice. And so I think that in um, certain areas of foreign policy, uh, the Council has to decide uh, with uh, qualified majority and no longer with uh, the unanimity rule, which is leading uh, nowhere because uh, from time to time it happens that one country is opposing a common view and that's ridiculous in the eyes of the others. We have to have in mind the perception the other parts of the world have when it comes to the uh, European Union. And then uh, uh, we have to um, uh, reorganize our relations with other global players in the world. China, Russia being the most uh, um, prominent examples and uh, We have to work uh, on uh, on that. And then climate change is another global uh, issue where the European Union has to give the lead, to take the lead. And you just spoke about the nature of the EU's foreign policy making. And I also talked to many foreign ministers and they told me that it's actually a good thing to have this unanimity because then you can have a strong uh, statement or you can speak with one voice. You disagree. Yeah, but they are not speaking with one voice because they have, they are sticking to this principle of unanimity. They are very often, from time to time, unable to speak with one uh, voice. Foreign policy is a too serious matter to let it uh, being dealt with by the only by the foreign ministers. That's not the best way to do it. And talking about the foreign policy, 
the European Union uh, is facing a lot of challenges, just the latest, the example in Belarus. Uh, so what do you think, what has to change so we are better equipped uh, to, to face such uh, challenges? The key question is the decision-making process, obviously. Belarus was such an obvious provocation of state terrorism yeah. that nobody can escape. But when, even already when we speak about the man behind, and that is Vladimir Putin and the Russian oligarch system, then the discussion is already going on in Europe, whether we are united or not. And that brings us not to a strong voice, that brings us to nowhere, that brings us to no voice at all. That's why we have to change this. Um, and I want, to, I want to see this more from, from how can we explain always as politicians these structural things to citizens and and you know i have uh, the freedom fighters in belarus the young people on the streets now in the prison 30 years ago 35 years ago it was in budapest it was in 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 in, in dresden in in warsaw where people went out in the street brave convinced people to went out in the street fought for freedom for our european way of life and having this in mind, then Europe must be on their side, on the freedom fighters' side. And we must be strong in this. And economic arguments cannot be an argument to compensate these principles. And that is what I, what I think we have to translate things in the daily, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the emotional aspects as well for the people, that they can understand why we are doing these, these things. I'll give you another point where I see a need for a stronger Europe. We still have not yet a real united Europe when it is about the... the the, the future perspective for young generation. A lot of people are leaving Romania, Bulgaria, Montenegro and, and these regions and go to Austria, to Belgium, to Germany for jobs because for economic future. And I dream about a Europe where you go to Bucharest and study there. Huh? Where is it attra attractive to be there? So there is still so much to do in these points. And currently, currently after the health crisis, the biggest challenge is for us is EPP jobs, jobs, jobs. Huh? We lost last year 7% of GDP as Europeans. We are the losers of the pandemic. China won 2% even in the pandemic year. And that's why we have to do a lot to give, especially the young generation, a perspective. And if I may make this also concrete, in Jean-Claude Juncker's time, we had a real momentum on free trade, on trade agreements. Yeah. We did a lot. Canada, uh, we had Japan as, 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 as the trade agreements we finished. So a lot of progress. And now I see Mercosur, I see the Chinese ag agreement and all the other points, everything blocked. And if Europe is not capable to keep the momentum of Jean-Claude Juncker commission in a way, 90% uh, of all growth in the next 10 years will be outside of the yeah, European Union. Exactly. Not in Europe. And that's why if we, not, if we are not motivating there, and that's all tasks of our party, of the EPP to do so, to fight for this, then we are lost. And, and that's why, again, there are so much subjects also for the future conference to consider now where we need this momentum. And I think we can a lot of learn, uh, learn a lot from, from what, what Jean-Claude Juncker in these five years did. Huh? He's becoming better and better. <laughs> Phrasing you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and the, uh, but that's a real issue because trade is important. I know that the general public doesn't like trade agreements because they are provoked by so many voices saying that this is not in the interest of the European Union and of the European countries. But one has to know that millions of jobs are depending from foreign trade. During my mandate, we have concluded 15 trade agreements. In fact, we have trade agreements with 75 countries 
worldwide. So we are a major player when it comes to international trade. And there, the European Commission is exclusively in charge. This is not a matter for governments, but it's a matter for the European Commission. We have concluded by the end of uh, our mandate by Commission, I mean, a trade agreement with Mercosur. We were uh, meeting in uh, Buenos Aires in December 18. And all the Europeans having attended this G20 meeting were invited to the signature of this uh, uh, free trade agreement with Mercosur. The French, the Dutch, the Germans, uh, the Italians, others. And now people are suddenly disappearing. Yes. When it comes to defend the common decisions we have taken together with other parts in the world, we are lacking courage because the public opinion suddenly is discovering, rightly or wrongly, weaknesses of these uh, trade agreements. No, no, no. If we want to play a role in international affairs, we have to stick to our competencies uh, in the trade uh, uh, area. Hopefully, the European Parliament has always been the ally of the European Commission when it came to this uh, uh, issue, whereas member states are always trying to um, save their own national interest when it comes to trade agreements. No, no, it's not about France or Germany or Portugal or uh, Ireland, it's about Europe. Europe has to uh, represent in the world a uh, divisive and decisive factor. And when it is about, if you allow me, when it is about this future of Europe aspect, you cannot regulate any, everything with probably new structures, new regulation, probably even a new treaty. Uh, we also have to, do, to consider how the culture is among those who decide. When Jean-Claude Juncker speaks about this, then I say we need again politician, a political class from all parties who are in Europe, in the same way, honest, than at home. Huh? Yeah, and they yeah. say in Brussels things, they have to do it at home. The Brexit started with politicians in, in Great Britain who were not honest in European issues, huh? who made populistic speeches, full stop. That's a reality. And, and then uh, 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 even David Cameron was part of this. And then a few months before the uh, referendum, he said publicly, Let's be in favor of Europe. And that is not mm. possible anymore to change this. That's why we need also culture. Please be honest. Please be also correct in, towards Europe and, and defend Europe if needed, if you think that is a good compromise. And it's interesting that you mention it because I think that the uh, current pandemic is also a good example that uh, facing a crisis, uh, some issues uh, that were unsinkable of can then be discussed without taboos like the recovery plan yeah. and eurobonds. So um, do we need a crisis to, to get ahead of uh, Sometimes curve? it seems that the European Union needs a crisis. In the last years, we were going through a poly crisis. We had migration, we had climate, we had uh, the uh, economic and uh, financial crisis. And uh, in the middle of this crisis, People were not aware about the fact that we have to change things if we want to develop a common European response to this different uh, crisis, mainly the economic and financial uh, crisis. Uh, back in 2009, I was, I was then uh, chair of the Eurogroup. I was proposing a so-called Eurobonds. 
Now they are there. They have a different name, but now the uh, uh, willingness of the Europeans have changed because they have seen, as the crisis were heading all uh, the European countries, that we need a common response. It could have been done 10 years earlier. So are you in the mood told you so? Pardon? Are you in the mood I told you so? No, no, no. But I told them. <laughs> <laughs> so do we need a crisis, Mr. Weber, to outsmart our critics? It is obvious that the big steps of Europe were mainly made in the last 10, 15 years after a crisis. But there were also other, other times. Uh, Jean-Claude at the beginning spoke about, about the euro. And uh, I was a young uh, representative of the Jung Union, the youth organization of my party in Bavaria. And uh, I, I, I saw their party conventions where Theo Weigel stood in front of the delegates and fought for this idea without a crisis. Huh? Yeah, it was a forward-looking approach. What is ahead of us, the world ahead of us? And what do we have to do to win the future? And I want to see this again. I, I, I'm an optimist. I, I think that it's still possible. And I would even go so far. I would say that's the best medicine against populism. If in the center you have politicians who show leadership yeah. again, who are who are not giving the easy populistic answer, but giving an, a challenging proposal for the future and having good arguments for doing so, no, no, no doubt about this, having good arguments for doing so, then it's the best method, medicine against populism because today the populists have so much room uh, because we don't have this leadership in, in, in Europe. And again, it's not a criticism because we had this crisis and nobody could consider that, that the pandemic will happen. So that was not foreseeable. But again, I would wish to see with this conference that we have this momentum now to consider the next 10 years in front of us and to be really ambitious. So how dangerous is it for the European Union that now within the European Union you are looking for the new leadership, but instead you have leaders and some countries who are openly talking about illiberal democracies, President Juncker? No, I think that this is total nonsense. I was always uh, defending uh, the European values when uh, we had uh, inside our political family the debates we had uh, with uh, uh, Viktor Orban and, uh, and others. It's not about illiberal democracy, it's about democracy. And one of the main uh, elements to be uh, uh, respected in a democracy is uh, the respect for the rule of uh, law. And uh, I think it's a major mistake if we are stepping away from uh, the principle that the rule of law has to be respected. It's in fact, that's a minority point of view, a uh, protection for smaller member states. What do smaller member states inside the European Union have outside the respect for the rule of law? Then. If the rule of law is no longer respected, the say of uh, bigger member states is more important than the say of smaller member states. And Hungary is a small member state. So Hungary should be amongst the first to insist on the respect of the rule of law. But we don't seem to be well equipped to, to deal with such issues. Because we were supposed, the European Union was supposed to be a club of democracies, not dealing with the illiberal democracies. Jean-Claude described it very well to say that the structure of the European Union guarantees 
rule of law, first of all, so that we have a European Court of Justice that for the moment Hungary and others respected always the court cases and the outcome. Yeah. Uh, but I have to say the, the legal base for the European Court of Justice to act is not strong enough, for example, media freedom and all the other points, and not the European legislation. That's why the base is not so strong. And that's why let's, let's be, let, 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 allow me to say a little bit of positive thing about my institution, the European Parliament and the EPP group, I think. Yeah. We fought last year a strong fight against council uh, in implementing a binding rule of law mechanism. The commission has now, since 1st of January this year, the right to stop payments for Hungary, for Poland, but also for Malta on the case of uh, Daphne uh, Caruana Galicia and all these things, we ha can stop money if rule of law is not guaranteed. And I really uh, ask now the Commission, use your rights. Huh? They, are, they have the chance now, use your rights. Taxpayers all over Europe would applaud, would be happy to have a commission, to see a commission who is ready to defend the interests when it is about our basic values. And that is for me a kind of a game changer. We have the first time such a legal base. And my, uh, my hope is that we can also have a kind of a neutral assessment on all this rule of law mechanism that it is really accepted by everyone finally. So you're confident that this new rule of law Let's mechanism see, will help? Yeah. We have it, we have it, and we have to, like in pol always in politics, it depends about how you use your tools you have in your hands. You need the willingness, you need the determination to do it, and hopefully the Commission is ready to do so. You know, treaties are important, and principles are important, but they are less important. People do think. What is important is the willingness of those who are in charge of the implementation of the treaties. You have perfect treaties without any kind of result because the willingness, the ambition of those who are supposed to implement these treaties is absent. You have weak treaties. But if the willingness of the leaders is there to do what has to be done, it's like a perfect treaty. And I hope that the European Conference is pushing us to put into place a legal order which uh, takes care of all these uh, basic principles and values of uh, the European uh, Union. The EPP is playing a major role under the leadership of my good friend uh, Manfred in all this respect, mainly when it comes to the rule of law and uh, Uh, principles of that kind. And I hope that, uh, I'm convinced that the next German government under the leadership of uh, Arnim Laschet will be, as Germany so often was, a real driving force inside the European Union. I'm convinced that he will do so because he is a uh, real European, not a naive European. We don't need naive Europeans. We do not need poets in the leadership of the European Union. We need to convince people doing the right things and Arnim Laschet will be one of them. Of course, we have to say that we still need to see what the outcome of the um, elections will be, but I see... Common sense will always prevail. That means that the CDU will be the European party number one in Germany. Okay, that still remains to be seen. But It of will course, be seen. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, But of course, there are many issues that are important for uh, the European citizens. And um, 
for young Europeans uh, in particular. And we have one question uh, coming to us from Antonio uh, in Italy, and he asked the following uh, question. How should the EU handle the bilateral relationship between the EU and the UK in near future, President Juncker? We are not uh, in a spirit of revenge. The uh, uh, British citizens have taken their historical decision to step away from uh, European integration. That has been done. We have uh, to respect that uh, decision and we need a... Uh, friendly relationship with uh, Britain. When I was campaigning as a Spitzenkandidat and the system should have been maintained back in 2014, I was advocating a fair deal with Britain. And so uh, I think that uh, these two entities, Britain on the one side and the European Union on the other side, don't have the right to forget that they have a common history. Well, but it doesn't seem to be so easy to get along. As I was saying so often, everyone understands English, but nobody understands the English. We have one more question from our young Europeans, this time for from Alejandro from Spain. Maybe you could answer that. Um, how can the EU help young Europeans to find proper jobs, very important, offer equal opportunities and eliminate the differences between countries? Well, Alejandro, that is uh, what we are trying to do now with the big investment, 715 billion euros, an unbelievable amount of money, which is now on the table. And especially in Spain, we have to guarantee, with the left government, I have to say, there are some doubts on the table, we have to guarantee that this money is now really invested in future and not in consumption, not in only compensating the loss of uh, tech, tax income. So we have to really invest in future, no market, new markets about digital, about uh, Green Deal, about new energy forms and all these things. There Again, there's a lot of money uh, on the table and if we really uh, invest this in future, then we can create jobs. That is our contribution. And having in mind that we are uh, establishing a European labor market as well, it's also a job opportunity. I, I think uh, th on the one hand, I want that everybody has at home a good perspective. That is what I want to achieve, a real European Union where we have equal living standards. But on the other hand, I like very much this open labor market that everybody can freely move and enjoy Europe in a way like we have it with Erasmus and other things. So that's why that is also a guarantee by Europe that you can work wherever you want to work. Uh, now with Great Britain, for example, people experience that this is not anymore the case. So there are probably two considerations, two remarks to Alejandro. And do you think, the, think that maybe Brexit was also something that uh, has made people understand how good it is to be a member of the European Union? Just to see the consequences? I think people saw over these years of negotiations under your leadership, Jean-Claude, people perceived and experienced that uh, that's not a clever way how the Brits are doing it. That was the feeling. But again, I think the real proof will arrive in the next upcoming years. So we see already very damaging figures on the economy for Great Britain. Uh, the financial market is suffering in, in London. So on the long run, we will for sure see the proof that, that this, was, this was a lie from the Brexiteers, that they lied towards the people. Uh, but I don't, I don't think that this will arrive on the short, in the short term. Yeah. Uh, that is the reality and that's very sad to see and that's why I fully share the approach that we 
must stay as friends open. The biggest, the biggest problem I see is really that Johnson was even not ready to continue with Erasmus. So I, I yeah. think this is really as a big damage that young students from Paris, from from Rome, from Bucharest cannot anymore study in Great Britain, and that's a that's a problem for Great Britain because they lose the talent. <laughs> and on the other hand, it's a big burden for the generation, for the next generation, because they cannot enjoy the freedom to 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 study where they want to study. Coming back to our topic, the future of Europe, President Juncker, four years ago, your commission outlined different scenarios for the future of Europe. Where do you see the European Union in 10 or 15 years? I'm, I'm, I have to say that I'm, I'm rather optimistic when it comes to the future of the European Union, because one of the lessons to be drawn from the pandemic crisis is that the general public and sometimes government have seen that there is uh, that these uh, national solos are a no-go area. Uh, we have to uh, work closely together in all kind of uh, domains. It has uh, the pandemic and the Brexit have reinforced the feeling of many Europeans that there is no other way to organize the continent in a proper way than to work together. So I'm, I'm rather optimistic. And uh, I have seen uh, after Trump and after Brexit that the adherence to the European Union was growing in all the member states because people suddenly discovered that nothing can be taken for uh, permanent. And so I think that there is a growing feeling in all the countries of the European Union that uh, things have to be done in a better way. That means a more pro-European way. Would it be also your opinion? Are you also optimistic? You have Probably to, right? I'm, yeah, I, I'm, again, I'm always an optimist because by nature as an, as a pro-European politician convinced about this project. But probably one, one, one point is that in the past crisis, meant for citizens uh, mainly fear, risk, danger. That was in the Euro crisis about economic situation, about losing money and so on, stability of the currency, so fear. It was in the migration crisis about the question to lose identity. That was the main, the most important concern from a lot of people. Uh, and now we have a kind of a crisis with the pandemic where I see in my in my relatives, when I speak with my family, with people, then they have the first and probably the second shot already in their arms. And they, they have hope. They are optimistic now. They, say, they see we can change things. We can things, make things better. Biotech, financed by the European Union. So we can do things better together. And that's why if we identify now also for the future, in this future conference, not only the technical things about how to manage things, that's extremely important, but also some flagship projects about what do we want to... You know, I campaigned two years ago with the idea to make a big plan in the fight against cancer. Yeah. And to say people, we can beat cancer. There is a chance, all experts tell us. BioNTech was doing research on fight against cancer, not on COVID. Huh? That was a side effect in a way. So if we can identify these fields where we show that let's do it together, then I think nobody will oppose, nobody can oppose, even the biggest populists cannot oppose to such, a, to such a flagship projects for the future. And again, for me, 
there are a lot of these things on the table. Let's look for them. Let's discuss them now in the process for the Conference for the Future of Europe. And allow me, as EPB Group, we already have finalized the position paper on this, where we try to have the first thoughts. We are not at the end of our thinking, but the first thoughts described our first ideas. And we want to invite now everyone to really contribute to this discussion. It should be a lively, lively, a lively uh, process in front of us, where we look really for these uh, motivating projects. And President Juncker, maybe last question. Do you think that this conference on the future of Europe could also help improve uh, the EU's image among young people so they know that people here working on behalf of them really care? Yes, this is uh, one uh, thinkable dimension of the European conference. But this has, as a precondition, that those who are gathering in uh, this uh, European conference uh, will not lie and will tell the youngsters that this is about their future life and that nothing which has happened till now can be taken for given. The European Union and European integration and the, the together of the European nations is a, a daily duty. It's a daily duty. Thank you so much for your input. Thank you both for your time. Thank you for listening to us. Uh, let's talk about the future of Europe. Uh, that's a, certainly a discussion that has to continue. So, but with that, we are going to wrap up this second EPP group-led talk event uh, on the future of Europe. Keep following uh, the conference on the future of Europe via hashtag COFOE to continue the conversation with us online from us here in the European Parliament. Thank you for watching and goodbye for now and stay safe. Thank you for listening to this EPP group podcast episode on the future of Europe. Please subscribe to our channel and join us for the next episode. We invite you to follow the EPP group on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook to learn more about our work.